Welcome to another episode of This Week in College Viability. My name is Gary Stocker. This is a special episode today. Our guest is Dr. James Brassfield, recently retired faculty and retired community leader in the St. Louis region. Jim has been involved with Webster University in any number of roles over the past few decades. And as a matter of fact, Dr. Brassfield was my instructor, one of my instructors, when I earned my master's degree many years ago from Webster University. And his perspective on all things Webster and all of the recent and even their historical challenges from rent payment to leadership compensation to the activities of the Board of Trustees all provide value and perspective that we can't get from the outside. So I invited Jim to join us today. Jim, good day and thanks for making time to join us. Let's jump right into the questions. So Jim, this whole trauma for Webster University started a couple of months ago and it was because they did not see risk. Do you know why, why did Webster not see risk in refusing to pay that measly $75,000 rent payment? This is a big mystery to me. Uh, when I first saw it, I, it was clear that it was a dispute between the landlord and the tenant over, over terms of the lease and perhaps trying to get out of the lease. Why they didn't respond immediately, apparently maybe the top administrators were out of town, but it seems like they should have recognized that this was, you know, this was an issue that needed to be responded to right away. And they uh, failed to do that and left the impression that it was like some of the local grocery stores, or I saw in the paper today, a local restaurant didn't pay its rent and going out of business. But uh, like you say, it was a small amount relative to the budget. And so it, it wasn't that they couldn't pay it, but it was a dispute that ended up being going public and looking bad for Webster. Yeah, I bet they regret that from day one, not paying that $75,000 rent and then taking up the issue with the landlord. Yeah. And and this is an opinion question, and some of these uh, during our podcast today will be like this. But before you retired, um, what was your view of Webster and their board of trustees? Well, as as a faculty senate president for six years, I I sat, uh, went to board meetings and, and uh like most boards, uh, you know, some people were actively engaged and and interested and contributed, and others, you know, kind of showed up half the time and and didn't seem to be very deeply in, engaged. Uh, it did seem to me that that there was always, you know, at least three or four people who were CEOs of major corporations and and brought that kind of expertise to the board. Uh, but I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that that over the long haul, the board member that that I thought was was most actively engaged and I think ended up giving the most money in the history of the university was the late Bert Walker. And Bert loved Webster and and uh, was a was a great cause of his and 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 his role on the board was to, was to be active and engaged and and uh, and involved and and certainly his. Uh, his passing a few years ago is a is a is a loss to his family and the community. And when when you think about just kind of a follow up, Jim, um, when you think about boards of trustees of private colleges in general, do you have any perspective on what those boards are like across the country or even across just the Midwest? Uh, no, I really don't. I mean, other than I mean, I have some familiarity with Webster's board, but but I suspect that that's that particularly for small to middle-sized institutions, as opposed to the Washington U's or the Harvard's, uh, you know, that it's kind of like Webster, kind of a mix of mix of people, 
uh, some CEOs, some other some other people. I think usually people don't get on the board unless there's some expectation that they're going to be able to write some level of check to the board. I think that's an expectation. Right. And and uh, I mean, I've been on some boards. I was on a community board and and uh, and of a nonprofit, and there was the expectation that that you know we made a contribution to the to the organization as being a being a member of the board, in addition to trying to talk to some other people about fundraising. So I think that that the fundraising part is is an expectation. And, and I do remember years ago, you know, not this administration, but a couple of administrations past at Webster, they kind of complained sometime that they weren't getting enough money from people who were on the board. They were <laughs> disappointed that they didn't write bigger, uh, bigger, bigger checks. Uh, so I think that's an expectation. And, and I think in the, in the management literature, you, you see exit and voice. And I think that, that sometimes people who are on a board and then when a problem comes up or a set of problems, they kind of have a choice. Either they can become more engaged and, and express you know, their concern and, and voice, or they say, oh, this isn't, this isn't the central part of my life. This is, this is too much of a problem. I'm just going to resign and get off, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, if you have a board that, that too many people exit when there's a problem, then the problem doesn't get, uh, doesn't get addressed and solved. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, I, even in addition to the work I do for college viability and the college viability app, I've done a lot of research and writing on consolidation, mergers, if you want to call it, but I use the term consolidation, they're synonymous. Would you ever think in your own mind that Webster would consider a consolidation or merger with another regional or national college group? I, I have my PhD from Case Western Reserve University, which was once Case Institute of Technology and Western Reserve University in Cleveland, and they were across the street from each other. And they they merged just before I arrived in 1969 in the political science department. And, and there was a social science department on the, on the case side. And they negotiated back and forth about the merger of those two departments the whole two years I was there. And I kept telling people that if they can merge the football teams, they can merge the political science departments. And eventually they did. Uh, but, but that was kind of an ideal merger because case was, was science and, and Webster, Western Reserve was liberal arts and professional schools like law school and and medical school. Um, I don't see that kind of match with Webster and any place in in St. Louis. You know, I don't see that the kind of a natural match that's going to uh, to occur. And and you know, there's there's mergers and there's acquisitions. And my uh, my younger brother was an executive with the Neutrogena company, and eventually they were bought out by Johnson and Johnson, and uh, he said somebody asked him whether it was a merger or an acquisition, and he said, you know, millions of dollars Neutrogena, billions of dollars J J, J and J. You tell me whether it was a merger or an acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, it would seem like it would be more likely that you know maybe some bigger place would want to to acquire Webster for its real estate or something else. But a but a, a real merger of kind of two equals, uh, like Case and and Western Reserve, two equals with different you know different histories and functions, is probably a, not quite as likely in in the St. Louis environment or even a for profit from someplace else in the country. I mean, what advantage would they have in 
in acquiring Webster unless they just wanted a bunch of buildings in Webster Groves. Yeah, yeah. And just to follow up on that with 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 another question. And I see this across the country and that colleges in financial stress, um, like Webster, and that's been well documented by Steph Kajolian and um, Blythe Bernhardt in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, they, they say we're going to start new programs, new degrees, new majors, new courses. And, and from my perspective, they kind of throw these things up against the wall and hope they stick. What's your perspective on Webster being able to do that and being able to generate materially significant new revenue from new stuff? Well, that's that's been going on for years, and in in a sense, you know, Webster emerged out of the out of the near bankruptcy of the early 1970s, with the development of the graduate and undergraduate business uh, business programs, and and taking those programs uh, in an innovative format, and taking those programs to military bases and other civilian sites. So that kind of innovation, you know, was very successful for Webster. But all along, there was always the, you know, the administration would push and faculty would say, well, gee, if we just had program X or program Y, and and sometimes those worked and sometimes they didn't, uh, you know, kind of particularly specialized programs. Uh, uh, the In my time as a chairman of the management department, uh, the two biggest programs in our department and in the school were the undergraduate basic management program and the un- and the graduate basic management program you know and 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 the MBA you know kind of g- big generic programs because you get some economy of scale when you're putting a fair number of students into the same sets of courses as opposed to having you know kind of a narrow focused uh, uh, specialized program that doesn't have many students uh, so unless you latch on to something that is you know, particularly appealing or particularly unique, then just adding another pro- another specialized program may not really help your your finances that much. And so I assume, Jim, I know you have, you read about the demographic cliff and that's upon us shortly when there won't be enough 18 year olds to fill all these college seats <laughs> coming up. And the intense financial pressure that's put on, on most non-selective private colleges across the country. In your mind, how does Webster differentiate themselves in light of the fact that the supply is too high and the demand is too low in the coming years? Uh, Well, from an undergraduate perspective, one of the principal reasons that Webster started campuses in Geneva and Vienna and and, uh, so forth was to to differentiate Webster from other, other similar institutions by having an international campus that students could go to and, and go to kind of seamlessly and study for a semester or a year abroad and and so forth, which was kind of kind of unique and still somewhat uh, somewhat unique. But Webster also uh, innovated on the level of adult education. and And the big innovation in the seventies, eighties, and into the nineties was was the adult education market uh, rather than the than the undergraduate market. You know, I would say, you know, Webster had certainly a long tradition of of fine arts programs, and and uh, you know developed a fairly good size business school business school uh, program for traditional age uh, students. But the the big innovation of Webster and the big driver of enrollment growth for Webster in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties was the the graduate and undergraduate adult uh, 
business school courses. Uh, so, you know, as, as, as more competition there and, and the market is somewhat smaller there probably than it was 15 or 20 years ago, then, then, you know, Webster needs to find another kind of innovation. And apparently now they're, you know, bringing in some students from, uh, particularly from Asia, uh, in onto campus. And that, you know, may or may not prove to be a, a significant, uh, innovation for them, okay. but it's, uh, you know, you have to, you, you have to offer something a little different than, uh, now the fact that it's a lot of small colleges that are small liberal arts colleges are out in the middle of nowhere. And the fact that you're in a, in a suburb of a major metropolitan area, you know, offers some advantages for students who may not want to you know, a student who lives in an urban area may not want to go out and live in Podunk for four years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we see that. I see that in all the research and reporting that I do that that urban and suburban private colleges, if nothing else, they have valuable real estate. Well, that's not always the case in rural areas for small private colleges, and even small publics. Wisconsin is going through all sorts of trauma with their publics. Um, because they don't have enough enrollment and they're consolidating, closing all sorts of issues in Wisconsin um, on the public side. So let's go back to the Webster situation in the Post-Dispatch from earlier earlier this month. And when I talked with the reporters from the Post-Dispatch, the Webster board chair had yet to respond one-on-one to the Post-Dispatch. He had only responded via email. Can you speculate on why that might be the case? Well, I can speculate. I've never met the man, so I I, I really don't know. Uh, as as somebody who was a public official, uh, elected official for twenty four years, I've got used to dealing with the press and and enjoyed you know enjoyed uh, dealing with the press. And in fact, uh, when I was a when I was a kid, I dreamed of being a reporter at one time, and that was that was just after I dreamed of playing shortstop for the Cardinals. And neither one of those really worked out, <laughs> but. But, um, you know, I think I was I, I was comfortable. But on the other hand, I, I know a lot of people, even people, you know, active in public life who maybe because they were burned or maybe because they're just, you know, not very confident in dealing with reporters are just afraid that if they say something, it's going to be misinterpreted or or. Um, or that they say something stupid, and then when it gets reported accurately, <laughs> they <laughs> they get embarrassed. Uh, they get embarrassed by it. So, so I I don't know why. You know, I mean, it's not the way I would do things. I mean, I would I would deal directly with the reporter, and and uh, uh, you know, and and if I had confidence in the reporter and and wanted to say this is for public consumption, and here's a little background thing, and. I right. felt the reporter was professional enough to understand those differences, then I'd be comfortable at, at doing that. But I, I can't speak for, for him because I, I never have met the man and have no knowledge of, of okay. why. Fair enough. And then when you and I spoke um, recently, you said you had come from a Webster University Faculty Institute meeting. That, that's correct, right? That's, that's right, last Friday. And, and, and just how would you characterize the mood of the faculty at Webster and how they foresee the future developing. Well, I, th- I think it would be fair to say that there, there's concern among the faculty about the about the future of the institution in a in a changing in a changing world. Uh, but I didn't think that they there was a sense that the place was about to close or fall apart. And and I think that many of them in in my conversations with them, many of them talked about 
things that they're trying to do to to whether it's new courses and existing programs or or developing new programs and doing things to try to to enhance the viability of the of the institution going forward and 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 the education of students who uh, who come there. So so I think there's a sense that that uh, yes we have problems and but but a sense that we're working to resolve those problems. So in in that sense a kind of positive uh, feeling that uh, that they can they can do something to shape the future. I'm guessing you were not particularly surprised at the vote of no confidence from the faculty and the student protests that came out after the post-dispatch stories. Um, no, it didn't. And, and, and apparently there was, you know, some disagreement among the faculty. It wasn't a unanimous vote. And whether that disagreement was, no, we don't think we should do a no confidence or whether it was, we shouldn't do it at this particular time. You know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, certain, but I think that all of the, of the publicity and in, in addition to the obvious, uh, uh, problems that have been felt over the last few years because of because of the budget cuts of one kind and another that that there was a sense that that uh, the administration you know was not doing what they should be doing in terms of managing managing well the fiscal stability of the university so it's not a you know in that sense it wasn't a, a surprise that uh, that the that the vote was was taken. Yeah, I noticed it was it was a real, reasonably close vote in terms of numbers. It wasn't even close to being unanimous. No, no, and and as I say, I'm not. Uh, I I had some sense that part of that was not was the sense that that it's premature or we didn't have enough time to think about this in in advance. So, so I have Jim. I've regularly made the case that we are in the higher education version of the Moneyball era when there's all sorts of data out there from iPads and, and, and financial statements and Form 990s and all that kind of stuff. Given that we're in that money ball era for colleges, in your opinion, how how do private college, private colleges only for, will be our focus. How do private college boards of trustees move forward to avoid the, I guess I'll characterize as awful press and public relations that Webster University just experienced? Well, I think from a public relations standpoint, you know, as we discussed a few minutes ago, the kind of failure to quickly respond to to what was a minor issue, you know, kind of escalated. And and so, you know, one way is <clears throat> be more public relations savvy and don't be tone deaf to the fact that, uh, you know, if there's a story in the newspaper about you're failing to pay for rent, you know, that maybe people are going to take that as a as a symptom of a much larger uh, as a much larger problem. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, an administration and and a, and a board and so on uh, can't be lying or or deceiving about you know real financial issues. And and what happened here was you know a minor issue escalated into people looking closer at the real financial issues of of Webster in terms of you know deficit for several years several years running and so forth. Um, so, so I'm not sure how that uh, uh, how that plays out uh, uh, exactly, but but I think that that uh, the board and the administration need to to pay attention to the positive part of public relations and and to tell a good story, you know, and and to be honest about the bad story. Don't don't try to hide or cover up 
the bad story because it's it's going to come out, you know. And when it comes out, if you've tried to hide it or or uh, uh, or lie about it, you know, you're going to be found out. So so you know you don't you don't necessarily issue a press release saying we had a deficit this year. But on the other hand, uh, uh, you know, you want to you want to be kind of straightforward with what uh, what the real the real issues and and to address them and not not try to uh, to cover them up. Uh, now the you know the the Moneyball Oakland was the was the, the Oakland A's or the or the uh, the picture for the for the Moneyball uh, the Moneyball book and and so forth uh, and you know basically they tried to be efficient and not spend a lot of money on free agents and develop their own players and so on. On the other hand, the Oakland A's haven't been in the World Series for quite a while, <laughs> so it hasn't been completely. Uh, the money ball for them hasn't been completely successful, but I guess it's kept the franchise going. So, so um, you know, I guess uh, the money ball analogy would be that that uh, an institution needs to be efficient and and spend money wisely and so on. Uh, but uh, you've got to have some good pitchers and hit some home runs if you want to get to the World Series, also. I like that analogy. I think I'm going to steal that. And I, I follow these kind of stories across the country and I have people drop me notes all the time about colleges. And one of the patterns I've seen, Jim, is these colleges, especially the ones that have closed, will through their media and whatever sources say, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine, we're closed. Mm-hmm. And that's just a travesty for so many reasons. Now, Webster is highly unlikely to close. I understand that. But that that upfront honesty about the situation is not commonly practiced by these places in trouble and students there are all sorts of of horror stories about students and having to scramble to get new classes new courses new colleges and all that kind of stuff that goes with it yeah and i i i I, it concerns me concerns me a lot so and that takes me to to a question about private colleges and closures and again i'm going to ask for your perspective your opinion and folks have bandied about all sorts of percentages of private colleges that will close since 2016 you had one about not quite one private college closure per month. It's about eight a year, nine a year, something like that. I didn't we, realize the number was that high. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you see, you see press reports every now and then, but I haven't studied it like you have, and yeah. so, so uh, uh, that's a higher number than I would have guessed, actually. And, and you know, the, the analogy that I draw: who's, there was a politician who says a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about serious real money. money. <laughs> Same thing here, you know, you know, a couple hundred students here, a couple hundred students there, and you're talking 10, 20, 30,000 students who've lost their college homes. And that's what we've seen in the last six or seven years. But attach the Jim Brassfield thoughts to college closures in the coming years, especially for private colleges. Well, I, I, as I tell you, I, I think the ones that are most uh, at risk would be small liberal arts colleges with only, you know, 1,000, 1,500 students in in rural areas, and and where uh, kids from cities don't want to go to live in a rural area, and and don't 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 like the idea of a small college like that without a football team, and and uh, and so forth. Uh, so so they seem to be the most vulnerable. But as you mentioned, uh, I can see some second and third tier state universities also, you know, the the enrollment cliff hitting them. Uh, the advantage that they have is that they're, they're going to have some money from the state and the the local community leaders don't want to see their local college yeah. closed. So they yeah. put pressure on the on yeah. this on the state, even if they're losing losing money, they put pressure on the state not to not to close their institution. Whereas a, 
uh, yeah. same kind of institution that is a private institution doesn't have that kind of backing and support and is more likely to simply go under, particularly if they don't have much of an endowment to, to tide them over. And then, you know, I'm sure many institutions were hard hit by COVID and, and disruptive in a whole variety of ways uh, that COVID hit, just as I think Webster was, was disrupted and the, and the, you know, the, financial losses and so on uh, increased because of COVID because students weren't coming to class and, and uh, you know, maybe not going to school at all. Uh, adult students, you know, may drop out because of COVID. And so, so, um, so I think that, that uh, while I don't have, I don't have a sense of numbers like, like you do, but it does seem to me that, that there probably are dozens of, of, uh, colleges over the next few years of one kind or another that'll that'll close and and maybe some of the you know the government is kind of cracking down on some of the for-profit institutions that really were were often ripoffs of of students and and so i i suspect some of those places will will close all, if they haven't already because yeah. yeah. the government is is cracking down and making it harder for them students to get loans government loans to go to those places and so that's a that's a kind of institution we haven't mentioned, but I suspect they are also one that uh, you know if they're not making a profit, they're going to close down pretty quickly. Our guest today has been Dr. Jim Brassfield, a longtime faculty member and community leader in the Webster Groves region of St. Louis. It's a suburb of St. Louis proper. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for making time today, and we'll look forward to talking with all of you and sharing additional updates on This Week in College Viability in the coming days. This is Gary Stocker. So long for now.